This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Jacqueline Novogratz. She's the founder and CEO of the Acumen Fund and author of the memoir, The Blue Sweater. I spoke with her on January 8, 2010, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in a private recording studio in New York City. This interview is included in our program, A Different Kind of Capitalism, Jacqueline Novogratz and the Reinvention of Aid. Download the MP3 of that produced show at speakingoffaith.org. I I guess the only thing I wanted to say is that, um, you know, I spent the last few days immersed in your book and also listening to you speak and, uh, you know, reading other things you've written and said and things that have been written about you. And I think that um, we could spend an hour just talking about your story as it's told in the book. I think that I, w- I want to spend a bit of time there, but I want to focus on the present, on what you're doing now and what you're learning now, and and weave in um, the formative experiences you had in that way rather than rather than spend 45 minutes telling the story of how you got here. Does that make sense? That I, I actually love that idea. Okay. All right. So, so, I mean, I do want to spend a little bit of time telling some of that, and I can tell some of it in script, too. But I just think it's important for people to know what's happening, you know, what this is now and uh, what it means now. So, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll lead us. <laughs> All righty. Okay. Um, Chris, how are we doing for sound? Should we, can we? Okay. All right. Well, I want to start um, by asking you a question that I, I ask everyone, whoever I'm talking to, whether it's a quantum physicist or a theologian and whether they're religious or not. But uh, just to tell me a little bit about um, this, what you would describe as the spiritual background of your childhood. Um, well, I grew up in a very Catholic family. Um, uh, my grandmother immigrated from Austria, as did my grandfather as adults. Um, so it was immigrant and Catholic. Mm. And so I think spiritually it was certainly a very religious family, but also um, a culturally spiritual family um, where not only did we have lots of nuns and priests in the mix, right. but um, but uh, a, a real uh, integration of that into daily life, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to um, my my first grade uh, to a Catholic school and was very much influenced by a nun, um, Sister Mary Theophane, who um, probably more than anything, almost from a spiritual place, would say on a a daily basis, um, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. And Mm -hmm. I think that that had a huge impact on me. You know, you wrote... um I'm, I can't remember the context right now, but there's some place in your book, I think, where you're talking about a quality someone saw in you as an adult. And you talked about how they, among the among the qualities they saw, they saw the Catholic girl who can scrub a floor, scrub a kitchen floor until every, <laughs> <laughs> until every corner shines. And I mean, I marked that because it, it's, there's a, I mean, you absolutely have a work ethic, right? I mean, that's also part of what you are sharing in your work with others, but I, I did, I was intrigued in that connection you drew with the Catholic culture, as you say. Well, I, I mean, there's a part of me that thinks that every Catholic girl was raised by the exact same Catholic mother, um, <laughs> because our experiences are so similar. And certainly for my mother, and I'm sure for her with her mother, you didn't just 
clean a floor. The floor wasn't clean unless you were on your knees in the corner. <laughs> and when I meet other women, particularly my age, I find that the the same level of expectation was often put on them. Mm-hmm. And so um, I definitely think that there's a whole cultural aspect to what is expected of you. Um, and in some ways to the notion of work as um, a spiritual act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I've loved reading um, about John, the kind of influence John Gardner had on you. And, you know, fast forward now to your young adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, of course, he was the, you know, his credentials were are manifold. He was former head of the Health Education Welfare under Lyndon Johnson. He had led, led the Carnegie Foundation, started the White House Fellows Programs, Common Cause. You met him at Stanford Business School. It seems to me that he also, as an adult, formed, um, if, if not your spiritual imagination, certainly your moral imagination. Oh, he absolutely did. Um, by the time I, I met John, I had you know, lived in, in Africa, lived in Rwanda, and, and, and as you said, I, I was a very spiritually oriented kid. Um, in fact, I wanted to be a nun when I was a little girl, oh, or okay. probably better, a saint, you know, <laughs> since we always had to read the, the saint's cards. <laughs> but um, what John did was give me a framework um, for looking at the idea of community, of service, and of commitment. Um, and, and how we interact within it in the world. And certainly more than any person um, besides family, he had the greatest and continues to have the greatest impact on me. I think I hear his voice almost every day. Hmm. Um, he would say things to me like, uh, Jacqueline, it's so much more, inter- more important for you to be interested in the world than to focus on being an interesting person. Yeah. Um, or commitment will set you free. And in some ways, he would almost answer my completely uh, driven questions with coens. Okay. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and just look at me as if the answer was so self-evident. And, you know, and truly it, mm. it often was. There's an, just an echo I saw that was so interesting. One place you were writing about him. And you said that he exhibited a tough-minded optimism. And um, I, in my conversations um, these past years with people uh, of, you know, what I call the up-and-coming, well, as I think about the difference between idealism, let's say in the 60s, which was the model that a lot of us knew growing up, um, there's a, I, I, I like to think of what's going on in the world now, or some, somebody, some people have said it this way, and I, it's, it's also one way to talk about what you do. There's a, it's a pragmatic idealism. And yeah. I, I thought there was an interesting echo between tough-minded optimism and pragmatic idealism, and both of them are different than the idealism, uh, in some sense, that came out of the 60s and formed a lot of what we think of as aid, right? <laughs> the world you're working in now. That's right. The, one of my favorite quotes is um, by Dr. Martin Luther King where he says that love without power is anemic and sentimental and mm-hmm. that power without love is reckless and abusive. Right. And I think that that's really the, in many ways, the challenge of our generation. You know, do we have the moral courage to walk holding both love and power? Um, because I think that's the only way solutions really will be had. And do we have the courage to fight for what is right, but not in a way that's winner-take-all. Mm. Um, mm. Fight in a way that 
produces solutions where um, we're creating more justice, more opportunity. And you, um, you're working now, your Acumen Fund and your work in the world uh, has given rise to, or at least been a very formative part of a, a kind of new concept of patient capitalism. And I'd like to get around to talking about that and very concretely talking about what that looks like. But but first of all, I think it seems important whenever people are talking about patient capitalism to talk about what it's not, right? Um, it, it's kind of a, a third way. It's not um, aid as we've known it these last 50 years. Um, it's also not um, the same thing as investment or socially conscious investment. Um, so I wonder, you know, what I'd like to do is if you would reflect with me for just a few minutes on, you know, how you came to that notion and, in fact, those words, which are very intriguing and some might find an oxymoron, patient capitalism. You know, mm-hmm. talk about some of the turning points that brought you to this different way of coming at um, at these these issues, these problems, this human condition. <laughs> Um, sure. I started off my career um, as an international banker during the early 1980s when the world was going through another banking crisis, um, this one concentrated in Latin America. So I was spending right. a lot of time in Chile, Brazil, Peru, and I fell madly in love with Brazil and was really intrigued by the favelas where the low-income people were living and by how much um, work was being done in the streets and then my day job was at the bank, essentially writing off millions and millions of dollars of loans that were not going to be repaid, all of them given to the elites. And um, it dawned on me that the, the low-income people not only didn't have access to loans, but they didn't even have the ability or the courage, call it whatever you want, to walk through the doors of the banks. Hmm. And so um, learned at an early age that the market by itself was not going to reach low-income people, was not going to solve problems of poverty, um, in many ways didn't even see low-income people as potential participants or, or, or consumers. Right. And, and you, um, you also say that you did love banking, right? You did, you I loved did love it. being a banker. I loved it. Uh-huh. I loved the intellectual challenge. I loved understanding the power of money to invest in a in a innovative person and her or his idea um, to understand you know, what, why do we need working capital to enable a company to build processes and inventory so that they can uh, provide services and build jobs. I liked everything about banking except for the fact that um, it, it wasn't open to all. There was a mm-hmm. kind of a deep line. I mean, we, we used to call it redlining huh. um, across which um, a whole group of society was excluded. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, at that time, I was starting to explore whether there were any options out there and learned about um, microfinance, this idea that Mohammed right. um, Yunus had come up with in 1976. So it was still very early, considered very fringe. Um, uh, but I thought it was a great idea and wanted to somehow get involved, um, long story, but moved to Rwanda to help a group of women start the first microfinance bank in the country. And at that time, there were even big arguments as to whether it was ethical to charge interest and 
um, really interesting time. Um, through it, I saw the power of using a different kind of capitalism um, to reach women through providing them um, access to credit. But I also saw um, the destructive capabilities of aid. Mm-hmm. Um, this was pre-genocide and already saw so much waste on the ground. But certainly um, after seeing what had happened to Rwanda through genocide and seeing how money channeled to groups of people who then controlled who got access to that to those resources, not um, based on any sort of merit, but based on who they were, whether they were insiders or outsiders, uh, really convinced me that this top-down approach um, to aid was also not going to solve problems of poverty and that there had to be a middle way. And this was in the, you were there in the 1980s, is that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. I was there from 86 till about 89 mm-hmm. um, and then went back after the genocide. It's interesting. Uh, I don't know how it looks from where you sit. I mean, from where I sit, which is not, you know, inside the universe of, of aid and development as you are. It seems to me that there's been kind of a tipping point in terms of general public awareness of the the problems with aid as we as, as it's been done and as it's been practiced and imagined for several generations. Um, and but then you know when you look back, there there are in fact many accounts of people like you, and also many accounts from Africans <laughs> um, about this not working this but in but in fact what is it 500 billion dollars have been spent in africa since 1970 it's kind of astonishing that it took so long for this story to be told as widely as it's being told now well in some ways i think it's um connected to how interconnected we've become as a world and how Mm -hmm. much more information we have um i think it's dangerous though to say you know, all aid is bad. Right. Um, and that's – and part of what we need as a world, and I think it is, it is linked to spirituality, Krista, is more nuance, more recognition that mm-hmm. um, it, life doesn't happen in just black and white ways. And right. so there are evident – there are incidences, um, certainly the eradication of smallpox, uh, the near eradication of polio. We still have work to do. Um, where top-down solutions actually – are the only kinds that will work. Mm-hmm. If you have to get a vaccine to every single person in the in the country, you need to work with um, bottom-up groups, no doubt, businesses, nonprofits, uh, anyone you can find. But there needs to be a directive that as a society, we must vaccinate every single person or we won't eradicate this disease. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So let's talk. And I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I also think... Um, when this discussion takes place, a lot of people don't know to distinguish between relief and development, and obviously those are mm. different kinds of situations. And um, and as you say, there are a lot, as so many good people. I mean, also it's easier to fault the um, the results of some of these projects. Uh, harder to fault intentions that went into them, right? I mean, I think I remember you writing, you wrote a paper, one of your papers that you wrote or uh, was the cost of good intentions as you were working in yes. those early years. Well, you know, that also comes from the Catholic 
uh, background as well. My mother used to say, "Good intentions, you know, litter the path to hell." Right. Um, <laughs> when I was, well, I tried really hard. Uh, it's interesting um, thinking about that forming this third way you've come to for the, thinking about. Oh knowledge. yeah. Uh huh. Oh yeah. Okay. So, but I think mm-hmm. it, I think it is so important. I mean, it intentions count, and and certainly in the Quran, there's a a lot written about the the importance of the intention intentionality. Um, but we can't, this goes back to the head and the heart. We can't just say, well, they tried really hard. That's enough. Mm-hmm. We need to hold ourselves much more accountable. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So here, some of the things that you have concluded that form, um, the way you do your work now is one observation you made is that free money backfires. So tell me why. Um, well, for a number of reasons. First, as I was saying before, um, free money often sets uh, communities up for power struggles between insiders and outsiders. Mm-hmm. So free money comes to somebody who then decides who gets it. Um, second, uh, free money often creates dependence rather than dignity. Um, and as you said before, in relief, there are moments where you need to get people uh, resources and money so that they can just survive the yeah. day. But when it comes to um, finding more systemic approaches to getting giving people the chance to lift themselves out, they need to be treated as partners. When you give them the free money, it's almost um, inevitable that you see them as dependent on you and they see themselves as dependent on you. Um, that's not um, a dignified way to interact, create partnership, nor does it provide any incentives for the individual to grow. Um, And we've seen that over and over and over again. I was just in the slums of Nairobi, uh, where there are book clubs now, um, reading The Blue Sweater, and Mm -hmm. it's just this incredible opportunity to talk to the people I write about, um, very, very low-income people, and the disdain they have um, for the people who come in and like Lady Bountiful, and they give out the money. And um, there's a laziness in them as well, um, according to the people in the slums who, who, who want partnership, who want opportunities to really grow and build economics, uh, build microeconomies. And so I think those two reasons are the, the, the most important. You have a, a, there's a line, I, I believe it's in the blue sweater, I think it's a very striking sentence, You're, generosity is easier than justice. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, almost enough said. I I, I think that um, really understanding um, what it takes to create a just a just society, a society where people have opportunities, and then building it. In in some ways, it's the great challenge of our world, and always has been. Uh, so much more difficult than giving a gift and hoping that things work out well. Hmm. So where did the term um, patient capital or patient capitalism come from? Do you remember? You know, I, I don't really remember. And um, a, a, a number of people lately have been giving me an acumen, all the credit for it. And I, I actually think that terms like that often come from um, almost memes, lots of different sources that uh, organically go through. And I'm not sure... If, if we coined it or I coined it or who coined it. But I remember um, 
when I first started Acumen Fund, talking a lot about the problem of capitalism is that it gave no time for entrepreneurs really to innovate and experiment in the lowest income sectors of the economy because one, um, no one with real resources saw those lowest income sectors as real markets. Hmm. So there was no real R&D um, put into the markets. Um, and and two, you were, you were really looking at markets where there were uh, terrible distribution, no roads uh, or very muddy roads, no electricity often, individuals that had um, obstacles in front of them, whether it was clean water and thinking that you know, water comes from God, so why would I ever pay for something like this? Right. Lots of fatalism, um, no experience and no money, people making $1, $2 a day or less. And so to expect that an enterprise was going to get started and flourish in uh, a you know, one to three or even five-year period was um, naive, but that if we could use the tools of capitalism and have the patience to invest, expect um, at or below market returns, and combine it with a lot of management assistance because we, look, we see all over the world that the biggest issue is talent. Um, we don't have the management systems that over time, you actually could create a viable entity with sustainability um, that would sustain itself for the long term and would grow. And so I, I, I suppose it was in those kinds of conversations where the word patience kept coming out, mm. kept coming up. Mm. Um, and then people would say, well, maybe it should be slow capital. And I thought, well, slow feels lethargic and um, it's it, it feels too connected to the slow food mu- movement, right, right. Um, which has been more for the privileged. Yeah. You know, we need something that is really um, a word that exemplifies um, what we need to be, even though we're impatient people. And mm-hmm. so we started playing with this idea of patient capital for impatient people. Right. You know, Jacqueline, I have to say, as I was, as I was immersed in all this, um, I don't think patient is is one of the words I would use to describe you. <laughs> <laughs> you would not be alone in that. My team teases me about that. Okay. It's very interesting with Novogratz that you think we have to be patient. Uh-huh. Well, okay. So I think rather than talk about it, what might be most helpful is to illustrate this. And let's talk about, um, you know, take me through the process of one of your longest-running projects. I thought maybe Water Health International would be a good example, but if you want to use another example, that's fine too. Because okay, so here's you know one question that occurs to me is, um, uh, how do you avoid some of the same pitfalls of um, going knowing what low-income poor people need better than they know themselves? Right. I mean that's that's the crit- criticism that I've heard and that you write about. Um, right. So what's built into your process um, that makes uh, the people who are being served also your partners? Did they, do the, does the initiative come from them uh, in the first place? Um, the initiative typically comes from an entrepreneur. Um, in, which, a, in, in, in Kenya in community, or in... But, yeah, in, in in this case, in India. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, in this case, it was even more complex. It was a Ghanaian entrepreneur who found himself in Los Angeles with a technology built by an Indian um, 
scientist at Berkeley who had um, who had tested a, and this is this is where the whole global right, right is right. it's so interesting yeah and they had tested um, a UV filtration system for for purifying water in the Philippines and um, really wanted to see whether this could work in India and so it was not the local community um, but the context around this was I was finding myself increasingly being asked to speak at conferences um, on panels where the question was, is water a human right and should be given free to everyone? Or is it a scarce commodity that right. we need to price? And I thought, this is just the wrong question. Right. Um, the point is we have 200 million people in India alone with no access to clean drinking water, 400 million people with limited access. So let's experiment. Let's try. When we found Trellance Addy... Um, did you find him or did he find you? How did that connection get made? Um, probably a mix mm-hmm. because so much of this is networks and, again, um, global networks. Mm-hmm. There were um, people at Berkeley uh, who told us about Trellance, um, uh, another f- friend of mine who works in development had um, told Trellance about me. Okay. And... Um, we ended up having early conversations, you know, a couple, a couple of years before we then went back to them um, when they were ready to – because we had said we're n- we'll, we'll never do a startup and you, you learn constantly as an entrepreneur never to use the word never. Um, <laughs> and so um, because we had a proven technology and a proven business model, by that point, Trellance had learned through the Philippines experience that he wasn't selling a cool technology. The poor didn't care. Uh, whether it was UV filtration or reverse osmosis, they wanted to know that they were getting a service of safe drinking water. Um, because he had already gone up that far on the learning curve, we decided to take the risk with him. We invested $600,000 in equity. We bought shares in this new for-profit company um, of patient, knowing that it was going to be a while because everything we were going against every odd. As I said before, people thought water came from God. Why should they ever pay for it? They had never paid for it before. Right. Um, the villages were very far away. People made $1, $2 maybe a day, you know, very little cash in the, in the overall community, and we were introducing a new technology. A government people felt that um, it was going against government policy, which was that free water for everyone, um, despite the fact that so few people were actually getting it. Hmm. And many of the elites with whom, whom we spoke said that um, it was unethical for us to be making money off the backs of poor people. Um, and so fighting all of those barriers decided, um, but nobody's even trying. Nobody's experimenting. Right. And so we put the $600,000 in um, and then started working as partners. The first thing that came up, and again, it's a differentiation between a charity and a, and a for-profit, was the recognition that the original plant – in the village, which was a huge blue diamond um, and was mostly made from materials that were not from the village. They were not locally sourced. We brought in a, um, an Acumen fellow for about four months, a guy named Ankur Shah, who was a McKinsey consultant with an, an architecture background. And he worked with the company and did a redesign of the plant to make it um, modularized so that we could then move these across um, many, many villages in time. Hmm. In a typical nonprofit, it would have been easy for me to come and and take you there and show you this beautiful blue diamond, and you would say, oh, my goodness, it's so wonderful. 
but we wouldn't really be talking about whether it was scalable, whether we could really grow mm-hmm. it in a cost-effective way. The second thing we did was realize that the banks um, had never had no tradition or history of lending for the delivery of water in rural areas, and so no banks would lend to the local entrepreneurs who were going to be buying these plants. And so we put up a first loss guarantee with um, a major commercial bank in India, again using patient capital. We could take the risks that traditional investors and capitalists would not take. Um, so again, the money and, is going to entrepreneurs there on the ground who are going to be implementing and managing this. Exactly. But you're um, helping make that loan possible. We make the loan possible to the banks so that they can lend to local entrepreneurs. Okay. We invest in the local company. Um, and then we have a locally based office that provides management assistance to the company. Mm-hmm. Um, long story not that short. Um, today, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, I was at the opening of the 285th plant. <laughs> so now there are over 400,000 customers buying water on a regular basis in a sustainable way. Um, and government has noticed, obviously. Um, and so the state of Andhra Pradesh, which is the state in which it's operating, a state of 65 million people, has just contracted with the water company, WHI, to um, build 300 more plants. And so in the next couple of years, we're going to see over a million customers hmm. of this water company. That, what's for, So for me, what's been so amazing is that now with one investment in one company, over now five and a half years, we're seeing an industry rise um, that is specifically focused on bringing water to um, low-income rural villages for the first time in India. And um, so, so what makes this model different from a grant model, for example? I mean, grants might have funded even that kind of expansion, right? But then um, it would have grants, been, they would have been, for sustainability, they would have depended, been de- dependent on further cycles of grants, right? But in this case, right. are they, have they become or will they become utterly financially sustainable, profitable? They, they will become. Uh, they're still in such a high growth mode mm-hmm. that they're not. Um, uh, they're not profitable. Uh, the six hundred thousand dollars we invested at the beginning, and IFC was a partner with a, about the same amount, um, has um, enabled the company to raise another forty million dollars in um, more traditional capital. Mm. Okay. So the first differentiation from grants is access to significant capital. It's very, very hard for a small nonprofit working at the community level in a four-year period to raise $40 million and expand to 285 villages. Right, right. Um, and there's just not that much capital available in those specific ways. Once you move into the capital markets, um, whether it's the quasi-capital markets where, um, where you would stay in the realm of patient capital or moving further toward traditional capital like the International Finance Corporation and individual investors, um, there's really unlimited potential Mm. to make that match. Um, The second differentiation is um, much more focus on um, monthly accountability. Much easier to understand what's happening at the local level because of the financial statements that are connected to what's happening. Um, <laughs> this gets at an interesting um, observation you've made that markets can act as listening devices. I mean, I think you mean that on many levels, not just this one. 
Oh yeah. Well, I I um I was once giving a speech in Pakistan and a feisty human rights activist stood up um, and he said, you know, you call our people poor. Um, you know, how dare you? And and I bet that you've never you've never even spoken to a poor person. And I said, um, you know, first of all, when eighty percent of the population lives under two dollars a day, that you're, you're allowed to call a popu- a part of a population poor, and we need to do something about it. And I said, but you know, I'm not going to sit here and argue with you around whether I have spoken to poor people. Um, the the what I've learned over the last 25 years of working in slums and working with low-income people is that um, if I give you a gift, even if I gave you, Krista, a Christmas gift, you would be highly unlikely to tell me um, what was wrong with it. Right. Um, and in fact, when I visited, you might even put it out on the mantelpiece to make me feel good. Mm-hmm. That same thing happens with traditional charity. If I ask you to buy something from me, um, you suddenly become a customer with a big attitude as mm. to what's right about it and what's wrong about it. And suddenly that conversation that we're having becomes much more real. And so in that way, the market is a listening device. Um, the, marketing ha- the market has huge limitations, and we have to recognize and uh, deal with that. But it also is one of the best listening devices we have on the planet. You know, I had a conversation um, about a year and a half ago with Binyavanga Wainaina. Have you come across him? He's a Kenyan I writer. know Binyavanga very well and uh, like him very oh, much. Oh, it's fantastic. And so one of the things that he's written, and, and, and as much for other Africans as um, for other Kenyans and, and people in other countries in Africa as for outsiders is, you know, one of the things he points out is that when you are constantly being... Well, that when you're called poor by p- people coming in who want to help you, even people who want to help you, he, he says that uh, he he grew up feeling like he was being defined by what he didn't have, right? He was being defined in terms of his deficits it, it, and what was wrong with him. It is so true. It You know, despite this, I was giving a conference. I mean, I was speaking at this very fancy conference. It is so true. And in fact, one of the Acumen Fellows... Uh, Josephat from Uganda grew up in a really, really poor village in um, on the border of Uganda and Rwanda. Actually, probably not far from where Binyavanga's mom's from. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, all my life, it was as if my middle name were poor. Right. They just kept calling me poor. And what's been so, so extraordinary for me um, in with these book groups of people in the slums of Kenya reading The Blue Sweater is that people will write me emails from, you know, uh, internet cafes, and they'll say, um, Jacqueline, you know, thank you for showing us what, what a person can do, and you've overcome so many challenges that it makes, it gives me courage to think that I also can overcome challenges, both in my own life as well as helping um, bridge the gap between rich and poor. And I think, oh, my goodness, you know, this guy lives in a shack. Right. Um, and by every definition would be called poor except his own. He doesn't see himself right, as poor. Right. And, um, he, he, and he sees me as having just a different set of challenges than he has. Yeah. What did you say to people who, uh, and I think this is a question a lot of people in this country would instinctively ask, people who said to you, you can't charge poor people for water. That in itself is in unjust, outrageous. Um, you know, I actually think there's a long-term conversation with the world that um, we probably shouldn't charge people for the first uh, few liters that are essential to 
living healthy lives so that we can ensure that every single person has access to it. Um, but that it is one of the most uh, increasingly scarce commodities. We're seeing water wars occur all over yeah. the, wor- the world, but certainly in India. And um, and that as a, as a society, we actually do need to think of it as a, pre- a scarce and precious resource and think about what it will take for people to be more thoughtful about the way that it is consumed. And so that's a long-term conversation about how does the market work with um, government to create a model where everyone has access and we are being much more conscious about the utilization of a scarce resource. In the short term, my response is when 400 million people have no access and we know that the poor are willing to pay for things of quality that they value and with clean water they see a connection over time obviously to their children's health which actually saves them money that let's start with something that low-income people can begin to control themselves because they're, they're sitting around waiting for somebody to give them this. Right. Um, history has shown us that it's just not going to happen. And I, I guess I, I, I heard you saying a minute ago, I mean, it, it may sound ironic, but that when you, when you turn someone into a customer, you empower them in a way to, to be more demanding, to be more discerning. Absolutely. Um, we have... Um, uh, and we're an invest in we actually have a 50/50 joint ownership between Acumen Fund and the government of India um, to run a private maternal health care uh, chain of hospitals and um, they call the women who are having babies pay, uh, customers which may sound crass um, and yet there is such a differentiation when you go to the public hospital where ostensibly the women are getting services for free, but typically they pay between uh, 10 and $20, um, 500 and 1,000 rupees um, in bribes when they're having their children, 500 for girls and 1,000 for boys. Um, the, the, at LifeSpring, by, by calling the women customers, the women become involved in um, suggesting changes. They want private rooms. They want... Um, little benches where their mother-in-laws can sit. None of that exists at the at the public sector hospital. The cost at LifeSpring is about uh, twice as much as what they would pay for a, a thousand um, the thousand uh, rupee bribe, two thousand, uh, which is about twenty five dollars for a normal delivery. And um, the whole feeling of the place is so different. Um, and what's so complex when you're looking at uh, low-income markets is that sometimes the poorest families will make decisions to go to very, very expensive hospitals hmm. um, for lots of reasons, particularly if they think they're having a boy child. Hmm. Um, and wealthier uh, families will sometimes send their uh, daughter-in-laws to the public hospital for free. And so I think the most important thing that we're talking about here is choice. And I think that giving all people choice to different opportunities um, is so connected to their individual dignity. And that's what we're really um, trying to do. Not saying this is always better than that. But um, we clearly don't have the solutions when over a billion people have no access to clean water or electricity or adequate health care. We need to experiment, and we need to experiment with all the tools that we have at our disposal. So 
One of the points that someone like Binyavanga Wainaina will make, um, and that is made in a bit more pointed way by an economist like Dambisa Moyo, is that these uh, the, the countries you're working in, uh, uh, places like India, countries like Kenya, these are young, young, con- young nations, right? I mean, old cultures, right? Long histories, but young, young democracies. And um, so, Dembi Samoya, who's made quite a, uh, who's gotten quite a lot of attention in the West for her. Um, for her ideas, you know, says that, that, that these countries must evolve to places like the West where the government picks up these basic services and has accountability to its own people for these kinds of services. Um, do you worry that you're, you know, that you're preempting that? Um, I know you've had conversations with her also. Yeah. And she's also, um, a, a good friend. Um, Krista, I don't worry, um, and the reason is that I believe that you know today in the twenty first century, a lot of, a lot, if not most, of our public innovation will start with private innovation, and we're starting to see that with Acumen, um, just as with Water Health, um, began purely as a private sector play, and is now in a major partnership with a uh, government in India. Mm-hmm. We've, we're seeing the same where LifeSpring is now also in conversations with government as to, you know, this idea, can you now take this model? Because it costs um, it costs a woman 2,000 rupees for a delivery in LifeSpring. It costs government 5,000 rupees to um, pay for the natural birth um, for a woman. So it makes sense for government to say, we actually have a model that's one-fifth the cost because mm-hmm. it costs a thousand, they charge two. Um, why aren't we outsourcing a lot of this to a company rather than trying to do it all ourselves? Um, uh, we have another private-public partnership in Nairobi, where Binyavanga's from, um, for toilets. When I lived there in the eighties, the public toilets, uh, ostensibly run by government, were dangerous, dirty places that nobody would ever go. Right. And Ecotact. Um, now has 30,000 people a day going to these toilets, paying five shillings to use the toilets. They see them as government toilets. And ultimately, and they are public-private partnerships, um, ultimately they may be fully run by government. We don't know. But um, this goes back to this draconian all aid is bad, all um, subsidy is bad. Mm -hmm. We can't start there if we're actually going to build the kinds of models that will grow to reach millions of people and sustain themselves over time. And we've seen what government by itself can and cannot do. And so while I absolutely agree with both Dambisa and Binyavanga on the end point, I really believe that using private innovation through patient capital, because again, these innovations can take five, seven, ten years Mm -hmm. to get right. They can lead to extraordinary public sector change. And with this interconnected world, from my perspective, once we've shown that you can deliver water uh, safely and affordably to low-income people or maternal health care or sanitation or drip irrigation, if government doesn't want to to scale that and they continue to, um, you know, allow things to fester, 
um, with corruption and inefficiency, then I think you start calling on networks of young people to um, hold a, a government accountable, but not in a way that says, do something better, but says, look, it can be done better. It is being done better. Now let's partner to take it to the next level. Have you had experiences of young people um, playing that kind of role? Um, n- not yet. Um, well, that's not true, actually. Um, in one case, um, which is quite an extraordinary case, um, we're invested in an um, ambulance company called 1298 um, Ambulances run by a great guy named Shafi Mather in Bombay. Now, Bombay, um, city of 17 million people, had about 70 working ambulances. The emergency service delivery, uh, highly corrupt, highly inefficient. So these guys said, we're going to start a private company. We're going to deliver emergency services to all people. So if you are taken to a hospital, you pay. If you're taken to a public clinic, you pay half the price or Mm. whatever you can afford free if you can't. Um, And in a, a real emergency like the terrorist attacks last year, uh, obviously, it's all free. And um, but they run it as they a business. Were, they but they run it as a for-profit company. Okay. Um, and we own about thirty percent of it. When um, the um, terrorist attacks did occur, the government noticed um, that these guys were the first responders and and really true heroes. Um, and now they have again a public-private partnership in four mm. states in India, mm. but. At the same, around the same time, um, Shafi decided he really needed to take on the fact that the ambulance services were so corrupt. And is Shafi um, the, the entrepreneur? Who he's the on entrepreneur. The mm-hmm. And he got together about twenty young people, young lawyers, who took on the case with him, and essentially took the case all the way up to the Supreme Court. And um, uh, the long and, and short of it is, there's now about a billion dollars of. Um, tenders that had not been um, gone through a legal t- a bidding process that are back on the table, hmm. which is really um, industry changing to start rooting out corruption. It was really done through um, movement and understanding th- of young people. Hmm. Let me ask you a question that um, that's always there for me, especially these last few years, as I've started looking more at this and had some conversations with people like Binyavanga Wainaina and now with you. Um, you know, I was intrigued reading your, your personal story that when you finished at Stanford Business School, I think you wanted to go back abroad, but John Gardner encouraged you first to look at microfinance in this country. Is that right? I mean, you, yeah. you quote him saying, what happens overseas is profoundly influenced by what happens here especially now, and the reverse is true as well. And I don't know when he said that to you, but I think that becomes more true every day. Um, Here's the bald question, right? If we Mm. can't solve poverty, if we can't ensure health care for every pregnant woman in New Orleans, you know, or the Bronx, or parts of Washington, um, D.C., who do we think we are going to solve these things for people in other countries. Well, and the, how can most, how can we think that we have that knowledge, you know what I'm saying? The most important thing, Krista, is that I don't think that we go over um to help them solve I mean to solve their problems. Mm-hmm. I think that I mean the, the whole idea of Acumen Fund is that we um we don't go over as uh with banners saying you know, we're here to help. 
we go over and say, we're here to invest. We're here to invest in local entrepreneurs with the best ideas that are bringing basic services to low-income people. And quite frankly, my dream is that we will find innovations that are serving poor people in the developing world that will come back to the United States. And I think we're already starting to see where we could learn so much from um, some of the innovations that we've invested in in India, Pakistan, uh, Kenya, Tanzania. And so from my perspective, it's not, oh, look at America, we're great, let's go over. I actually see myself um, as part of a single world um, that is becoming more divided, not nation to nation, but rich to poor. Um, and so I say it in, in the book, but the I really believe that the elites are becoming more like each other across national borders than they are to low-income people in their own countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely feel, you know, I'll, I'll meet someone in Karachi, Pakistan, but we went to the same schools, we eat at the same restaurants, right. and a uh, very different experience than a conversation with someone from Appalachia um, or a um, migrant worker in uh, Southern California. So I don't see it as we're here to help solve your – we're here to, sol- to solve your problems. I see it as um, where can we find innovation in the world that is doing the best job at reaching the most people possible at the lowest cost while not um, stripping the product of its beauty and all of the things that human beings want – um, and then can we take those innovations and can we take those business models and can we start exporting them to other countries, to other communities, so that we start building blueprints for what it ultimately takes to extend the economy to every person on the planet. So my orientation is absolutely not um, the North comes to the South. Um, and in fact, each of our country offices is... Um, staffed largely by locals and then surrounded by um, local advisors um, so that we're building hopefully and ultimately self-sustaining acumen funds um, in the countries where we work. Mm -hmm. We have no expatriate salaries. Um, We've tried to be very conscious about creating a global organization, not an American organization that does development work. Um, I actually watched your the some of the presentations you made at your annual meeting with your investors. Um, mm. I think it was the two thousand nine, which was really it was really interesting. It was really helpful for me, and I I was very intrigued um, with some of the language you use. Um, you know, you you talk about sharpened financial edges with spiritual underpinnings. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure that's an exact quote, but that's the gist of it. I mean, it's close enough. Yeah. So, so, uh, does is that language compelling for your investors? Is it uncomfortable for any of them? Um, are you creating a different kind of ethos? Um, how do you think about that? Um, you know, it's uncomfortable for some of them, um, and I think that. As patient capital starts to take hold, um, and I believe it ultimately will become a a new asset class, there will be 
lots of conversation about you know, what kind of financial returns versus social impact. Mm-hmm. Are there trade-offs? I find these some of these to be some of the most um, intellectually challenging and inspiring conversations imaginable. But for some people, they're they're so gray that um, I've had investors say, um, "Jacqueline, just get the returns, and that will bring the magic and the spirituality you're seeking." <laughs> okay. And, yeah. <laughs> and um, I just don't believe it. I I I believe we want to be. Um, inspired. I believe we want to be more connected as a world. I believe we all have that that feeling inside that if we don't start grounding our actions um, in a basis of uh, spirituality, whether you want to define it um, from a religious context or from this idea that we're all connected to each other, we really won't solve the problems that are so big in front of us. Um, and at the same time, we have that opportunity to do so. And so I, I, we are trying to hold that balance of at Acumen Fund, of a hard head and a soft heart, of really demanding excellence of ourselves and of the um, entrepreneurs in whom we invest. And at the same time, working from a place where, in many ways, we bring divinity into the work, <laughs> that we, you know, we listen, we try to put our shoes ourselves in the shoes of the other so that we understand that if we're the investors with the money um, there is an a power dynamic that's that's underway and that we might have to listen differently and use different language with the entrepreneur with whom we're working depending on whether they're from um, a slum in Nairobi or they're a very sophisticated entrepreneur from Los Angeles that wants to work in India different kinds of conversations and we need to develop the moral imagination and the more nuanced emotional intellectual emotional skill set mm-hmm. that that cannot compromise the financial skill set but must absolutely complement it so i know you have um incredible testimonials of the effects of your work on people who are poor, on entrepreneurs who might not have had possibility, on people who've been fellows in your program. I wonder what you hear about how this work changes investors. Oh, that's a great, um, that's a great question. Um, I, over the holidays, I actually got a number of, um, a, a number of letters from investors uh, who uh, shared lots of different stories with me, and one that was really touching to me is um, was from a a man who went to El Salvador with me. Uh, Acumen doesn't work in El Salvador, but we were just going to look at some of the, the potential work down there, and um, we had to drive through the, the through the hills on this on a pouring down rain day in the back of a pickup truck with a group of farmers and it was freezing and these farmers were hard bitten you know hard scrabble scruffy guys um and we sat in a in a circle together and uh, my friend the the acumen investor uh who is uh an unbelievable investor in his own right for major financial gain um was hammering these farmers with questions <laughs> and um 
I, I dare say showing off a little bit. And um, at one point, one of the farmers corrected his math um, and said, <laughs> excuse, excuse me, sir, but actually you've got that wrong. Let me explain. And, um, and in the letter that he wrote to me, he said, you know, the biggest gift that acumen has given to me, and this sounds, um, and this might, it's almost embarrassing to say, he said, but the biggest gift that acumen has given to me is that you've shown me how smart the poorest people in the world are, and they're just as smart as I am. Um, if we could only give them the opportunity to make change themselves. Hmm. And so I think it's it's that uh, growth and awareness that um, it's so much more comfortable in some ways to look at really uh, low-income people as the other, um, in part because I think we know that they are us. And, and certainly in my case, I'm only two generations away from it. Um, the women I see in Africa are very much like my grandmother was, um, and so I, maybe there's a fear there that a lot, that encourages us to stay comfortable, not go close. Right. Um, and Acumen says, you know, come, go close, and see the explosion of you know, human potential hmm. um, if we treat people as equals. And um, I just want to be really, really clarify this. So your investors, I mean, are they getting any financial return on their investment? Um, up until now, uh, none. The, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. They they give us money, and we say back to them that you will um, the money that we invest will come back to Acumen Fund. Any um, returns that are made made to the fund um, go back um, and are invested into other enterprises serving the poor. Right. We we're typically seeing you know four times for every dollar that we invest we see the companies raise an additional four. We give them metrics. We talk about successes and failures. And so the pitch, if you will, to donors is that um, that this is highly leveraged, more accountable um, money that will continue to uh, recycle itself in time. And um, they, they get change back. Uh, they right. get financial returns. Right. The return is in social change rather than financial. That's right. Okay. Okay. Um, where do you um, where do you find sustenance? Like, how does your moral sensibility continue to evolve as you have these experiences? I mean, you've really started um, an innovative, successful enterprise. This is all. It's been. It's very. You know, the trajectory of your work has has been dynamic. Um, what do you keep learning um, that takes you deeper, that sustains you? There must oh, be also hard times. You see a lot of, you see a lot of suffering as well, right? You see a lot of places where it's hard to yeah. imagine that human potential it, being realized. Yeah, you know, it's so funny, Krista. The um, uh, first, I think what um, feeds and drives me is I never feel successful. <laughs> um, I always feel that. Okay, well, we've gotten to here, but yeah. um, the questions just keep getting deeper and deeper. And Rilke talks about the importance of asking. That's you know, something not we have in common, answer. that we love Rilke. We both love yeah. Rilke. Yeah. But, you know, that asking deeper questions. And I, I, so part, 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 part of the sustenance comes from I really think I'm on one of the most 
intellectually exciting journeys of our generation. And um, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know anything. Mm. Um, and so that's one whole piece of just the pure intellectual inspiration. The other are um, the kind of emails that come both from the wealthiest people in the world and the lowest income people in the world. The joy that I get from those interactions um, gives me a feeling of being connected um, not just to rich and not just to poor, but across the spectrum. And um, I would say when you talk about seeing suffering, that is not what burns me out. And in fact, um, I think I, for some reason, have the personality that when I'm in a place, I tend to see um, the positives, Mm -hmm. the the possibles. What what exhausts me is um, the lack of caring from too many elites um, that where we see solutions that actually are not that hard to undertake and whether it's government bureaucracy or selfishness uh, we become unwilling to even experiment with it I, I find those conversations um, are the ones that drain uh, sitting in a slum even with terrible conditions even after uh, lots of violence uh, can uh, uh, you know hurt at the deepest emotional level, but it also reminds you of just how alive we are. Mm-hmm. So I don't, it doesn't drain me. It makes me angry or, you know, every other kind of emotion, but not draining. You know, I want to ask you about that. And I don't even know how, to, <clears throat> I don't even know how to formulate this question because it's, it's tricky. Um, about that, that exhilaration there is, um, I know this in my own life in very different contexts, but of going to a, an utterly new universe, right? You know, you wrote, you wrote about being in Brazil. Um, and I think many of us have experienced this in, in different places. But you said, you know, I couldn't recall ever feeling so fully alive, getting ready mm. for a day, except in those first weeks in Brazil, there was a rawness and a beauty here that brought every emotion right to the surface. I love the feeling, loved being in this place where the best and worst of everything seemed to coexist. In in my younger life, I spent time in Eastern Europe where there was a a very different kind of human crisis going on, right? Mm. But I would say that same thing where you saw the best and worst of of what human beings were possible of. And and it is... um, it it can be full of despair and exhilaration at the same time. Mm, so what's my question? Um, the, well, d- <laughs> well, I wonder if what you're getting at is, you know, why do we feel that way? Mm. And I think that there's something about being much closer in a more raw way to the human experience. Mm-hmm. And there's something about in our daily lives um, in the States often – you know, we hide death. We hide right. um, a lot of infirmity. We hide. We don't even really see where our, our food is grown or right. how the animals are killed before we might eat them. Um, so there's a there's a veneer in many ways over a lot of what makes us very deeply human. Right. When you're living in a place undergoing change and turmoil like that, the veneer is just stripped, and you are. You are right there right. with, I think, 
living in a way that is just deeply, deeply human. Right, the best and worst of the human condition all out on the, the surface. All out on the surface. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so then here's a more troubling question. Um, do we want other people in the world to be developed the way we're developed, right? I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Are we giving them the tools to become like us? Well, to not give tools um, feels paternalistic and um, a different form of judgment, Mm -hmm. that we're just giving them choice because um, it's too easy. And I've brought people um, into low-income rural areas and slums, and they'll say, well, look how happy everyone is. You weren't here the day that her third child died before she was one year old. Right. You, know, you weren't here when her husband um, and all of her brothers died of AIDS. You weren't here um, walking beside her every single day for five hours to get her water. Um, that, that to give people choice um, is, I also think, fundamental to the human journey and the human spirit. Um, the and we don't know where it will all go. I, my my dream would be that we could actually slow down and learn from what people um, have the, the the joy of community, the the time for each other. Um, I have to say, I sound somewhat hypocritical as the as someone who is could not be busier. Yeah, well, um, okay, and, but yeah, you know, some of the stories you tell in the blue sweater are about, about dancing everywhere you go, right? Dancing and singing. I love dancing and singing. Yeah, well, and those are things that, that we've lost in the West. We've lost storytelling. We're trying to recover it. We're kind of recovering it online, right? Um, so, I mean, what? Or maybe what you're saying is that uh, <laughs> maybe patient capitalism can mean that we. Um, that it, that societies don't have to lose all that we we have lost a lot in the West in our affluence, right? We have, and 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 there's also opportunity to regain. You know, with with that with the fellows program, we spend three days reading um, Aristotle and Plato and Martin Luther King and even Haldun and um, Gandhi and. It, it's all about storytelling and listening and um, because they, people come from so many different cultures as well, about food and dancing. And that is part of Acumen's culture too at our, um, at our holiday party. There's always a karaoke machine. <laughs> that there's a, um, there is a way to bring into our workplaces um, more of the community building, more of an emphasis on storytelling because storytelling is so connected to leadership anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so. again, I think that is being rediscovered in the West. But I did want to ask you about the Fellows Program, and I actually think that's a pretty good place to be to be ending up on. Um, because another, it seems to me, it's a core tenet of what you do, not just, um, not just supporting these entrepreneurs and projects, but also seeding the world with talent, as you say, which hmm. I guess have you found that as rare a commodity as uh, capital in some places, or at least not or skills, to um, trained talent or supported talent? Yeah. Um, the, the fellows program uh, started in part because we were so inundated with applications from the um, business schools all over, from all over the world, right. as well as design schools, engineering schools, and we had no place to put this um, 
this energy. And on the other side, as we were saying before, the uh, there were real management needs in the companies that we serve and invest in. Um, and and the third reason was I really wanted to um, see an alternative career path that was very legitimate for people who were highly skilled um, in business uh, and and finance and other and had had their other skill sets um, beyond consulting and investment banking. And so um, we started this fellows program just for ten people a year, and we only open the application process for about three weeks a year. We typically get about 600 applications from 65 countries. Mm. So there's a real hunger um, from people from around the world. And we bring them together for um, six weeks in New York City. And they come from all over. This year's class has uh, a guy named Zahur who is from a small village that's between Peshawar and Swat um, Mm. in a really, really isolated tribal area of Pakistan and right. just you talk about moral imagination. Josephat from Uganda, a woman from Zimbabwe, uh, Lebanon, the United States, uh, Ghana. I said Ghana. Um, and when they're in New York, we expose them to leaders, to thinking about financing companies and how do you even begin to structure the financing of companies in a in a country in a sector that has no other competition. So there's nothing even to benchmark. Mm. Um, we send them out into New York for a day with $5 and a Metro card. And their job is to come back at the end of the day with an, anal- an analysis for us of how they would redesign services for low-income people <laughs> from the perspective of the poor themselves. And they come back with these incredible stories. These, some of these um, young leaders have never been to the United States before. And you know, a woman from Kenya sat in a... Um, uh, a a shelter with women for about three hours. And she came back and she said, you know, it was so confusing because their families live in New York, but they prefer to live in the shelter. And um, that's where they feel they are more, most welcome. And as a Kenyan, mm-hmm. I can't even understand that. Right. Um, and so they, they, that sets the tone. Um, as I said before, we have three days where I talk about values with them through the readings. Um, and then we send them off for nine months. They work in different companies. They work in whether it's maternal health care company or um, D-Light, which does solar electricity for um, rural villages in India or housing in Pakistan. And they work at the upper management levels. And at the end of their tenure, we move them um, – we help them find jobs somewhere in the social – enterprise sector, because um, as you said, we're looking to seed the sector, not keep them all for ourselves, although I'm very <laughs> tempted every year right. to do so. You, you said something um, at the annual meeting, which I watched, you said uh, of the fellows, you were sending them off and you said their job as leaders is to leave a company that is better for them, but not dependent on them. Uh, and that's a very very challenging order, isn't it? It is, but I think that's the job of all of us as leaders. Yeah. And, and it's, the, it's the very But it's not a classic Western view of leadership. Um, no, probably not classic, but although I do think there are, are extraordinary leaders who, yeah. you know, live in that way. You know, next week I'm going to um, 
to Nairobi, and I'm going to be visiting Jami Bora, which is a a nonprofit community development organization that started by a woman named Ingrid Monroe with about 50 truly, you know, the poorest slum dwellers 10, 12 years ago. And today they have 250,000 of these um, low-income slum dwellers who comprise the membership. And about five, six years ago, um, Jami Bora decided that it wanted to create a for-profit housing development company largely for themselves, build 2,000 houses outside of Nairobi. And we put a quarter million dollars into it as a loan. And um, Ingrid is one who, you know, doesn't, who wants to leave a legacy that will continue without her. And I um, went back recently to see um, one of the women who was buying a house named Jane. And I tell this story um, on one of my TED Talks. Uh, Ex-prostitute, HIV positive, you know, really had nothing. And um, Jami Bora won't give you a loan until you save up your $50 first. Hmm. And so she saved her 50 She got her 50 And um, it took her five years, but she then bought this $4,000 house. And um, uh, I, when I asked her, you know, tell me about your dreams. Tell me where you are today. And she said, you know, when I was little, I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to marry a good man and you know I married a bad bad one mm. but um, my children love me and I um, I'm not a doctor but I I work with HIV patients I volunteer and I serve them and I tell them if you're you know you're not dead you're still alive and so it's your duty to serve and so she said you know so maybe I'm not a doctor but in some ways I'm better because me I I heal people mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and um, I think about going back to see Jane next week because um, she hadn't moved into the house when I last visited her. And she's now running a um, a very profitable kiosk um, in this community of 2,000 houses, so probably about 12,000 people. And I think it's that kind of um, trajectory. It's that kind of story that if we move away from just the traditional charity. I'm going to give you a handout and hope that, you know, life gets a little better for you today and invests in Jane that we cannot just help make, help her make herself a little bit wealthier, but actually um, walk with her as she moves out of poverty. Because what happens immediately is that she starts bringing a community with her, mm-hmm. not only her children, but in this case, the people, um, that she volunteers with um, who are HIV positive so that the world then um, really becomes a world where each of us help each other release all of the energy that we have to give. Um, and so that's, I think, the, the, the ultimate ethos of a kind of leadership based on moral imagination but that's not willing to compromise um, and essentially um, lower expectations because I definitely have learned that people live up or down Mm. to the expectations that are placed on them, Um, but keep them really high. Mm -hmm. And and I know that, um, I mean, Acumen Fund is a, it's a young enterprise. Um, I know that some of the, that there was wariness, uh, that there has been wariness or criticism that, of course, you can tell beautiful stories like that, but you can't affect... um, 
the larger picture of poverty or maternal health uh, or clean water, that these are huge global issues. Now, I know that that's something that's very much uh, on your mind about scaling uh, this work. And um, and I think what you said does suggest that changing the life of one person does mean more than changing the life of one person, right, in any context. But um, how do you think about... Um, uh, or what are you learning um, as you as you as you move through this about the about you know I don't even like the word solutions I bet you don't either <laughs> no. um, but about how can you can this model that you're innovating that other people are innovating with you um, address the these human crises in a in a in a large holistic way. Maybe even as we were talking about earlier, ricocheting back and and helping people in New Orleans uh, rebuild their lives. Yeah, I, I think. Um, I mean, I think about this all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you that, do. <laughs> oh my goodness, because it, that's that's the end game. And I think, you know, what do I have? Thirty, forty years left. You know, I don't have a lot of time. If we're going to be, you know, seeing this large scale systemic change, and. Um, and so for, for us at Acumen Fund, we have about $40 million that we've invested. So as you said, uh, compared to the world problems, it's a drop in a bu- bucket, um, although it's brought in about another $180 million into these enterprises. And already we've seen tens of millions of people get access to services and 22,000 jobs. So the numbers, as you said, pretty picture, uh, not, not making enough systemic change yet. But what's starting to happen, and I think Water Health International is one example, is that by proving and demonstrating that you can deliver affordable, uh, safe water to low-income people at scale, not 10,000 people for five years, but you know a million people, suddenly um, sectors start building around that idea and that company. And we now see five companies that are in the water space in this one state, uh, reaching a thousand villages, um, government now looking at this as a model for whether this can or cannot work um, through government, um, and so there we're starting to see patient capital invested in private sector entrepreneurs, both for profit and nonprofit, building companies or organizations that are reaching hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people opening up a larger conversation about what is truly possible at a systemic level. And so this next phase for Acumen Fund has to be more, or at least integrated more, with a voice around um, what kind of policies might be shaped to allow for this kind of enterprise to reach more people. What are the systemic changes that are possible? Um, And that's really my dream, Krista, is that Acumen itself um, needs to grow uh, to continue to prove and show these models, but that doesn't have to solve every single problem by itself. Acumen can create models, but then we have to be even better storytellers at showing how these actually are effective, how they can cover their costs, and how they can reach uh, growing numbers of people so that others can... um, replicate it, use the lessons from it, um, and and ultimately change the whole nature of the game. And has patient capitalism entered the lexicon of uh, business schools? 
Oh, yes. Um, in, in a very big way, we at Acumen speak at most of the major business schools. Um, and I would say that there's a groundswell of young people in the business schools that want to craft lives um, of deeper meaning. And they're looking for how they use their skills to um, work in social enterprise, work in environmental sustainability, and patient capital is very much a part of the conversation. And we're starting to see it. Um, I was at a planning meeting for Davos, and the term patient capital was used um, throughout the meeting, which was really thrilling to me. Yeah. Yeah. We just have a couple more minutes. I um, And I, this may be a, a self-indulgent question, but... Um, you quoted Oliver Wendell Holmes about the simplicity on the other side of complexity. I've heard that phrase, but I hadn't. I didn't know where it came from. You also, you also have written and you were writing about one of the places you were about the beauty and possibility that you could always see on the other side of chaos. I wonder how that way of looking at life, um, how that how that is alive for you now, how that runs through the work you do and the way you think about the future. Oh, my goodness. Um, I think that the leadership that we need for the future is a leadership that's willing to hold um, opposites in our hands um, and that... Um, can, that, that in some ways, Krista recognizes, I, I think, that we are going through um, a tumultuous time right now on our way to a more empathetic society, a more integrated society, clearly a more interconnected society. I'm a real optimist. Um, and, you know, speaking of faith, <laughs> that is... That is um, Ultimately, what it's about, I, I think the world is getting better. There are less wars today than there were in the last century, less people being killed. There's still ugly, ugly um, things happening and um, in many of the places that I work. Um, and I've seen a, a lot of ugly in my life, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but right next to it, just right there, is some of the most extraordinary beauty and possibility imaginable. And so... I think you hold on to that vision and we keep walking forward, Um, which isn't to say that we're not going to fall down along the way. Um, But it's the it's the vision of what is possible. Um, And that that vision, which goes back to your question on sustenance, is continually inspired by and by um, the people themselves who are creating extraordinary lives out of what we would consider nothing. Hmm. Okay, well, that's a great last word. Um, this has been a great conversation. I knew it would be. I really loved it. And um, Oh, thank you so much. I did too. Thanks for making the time. And uh, we'll be letting you know uh, when this is going to be on the air. And I, I did want to ask you, I, I think you said in, your, in the meeting that you... Uh, that the that the uh, syllabus for the fellows program, the, all the readings that you do, the curriculum that yes. you, that people are using that in book groups. Do you think we might be able to link to that on our website as well? Oh, we love that. Our um, li- our listeners and readers and podcasters love to read and to be able to. I just think that would be f- fascinating. So we might send you an email about that if that's okay. Oh, that would be 
great. And in the back of the paperback, yeah. um, we've also listed the um, the, sil- the syllabus. Oh, okay. I have a hard copies, hard cover. So the sil- paperback's coming out when? Next month? In February. Okay. February 10th, I think. All right. And so, um, so that's where it is. But we would love for you because it's it's linked to our community site, and yeah. um, and and book groups are starting. And I am um, I'm actually going to do kind of an Uber book group meeting in the in Kibera, the Nairobi slum. Okay. Uh, in a, in a wow. week and a half. Oh. Which will be really really fun. Yeah. Um, to to see in action. Oh, great. Maybe you can write us a little report about it. Oh, I'd love to do that. Yeah. I'd love to do that. Okay. Um, and Krista, I'd also love to, if you're ever in New York, just have a cup of coffee with you. Um, I truly, when I, like I said, when I read your book, I thought, well, there's a sister here. I you know, know. It I was know. just really. <laughs> yeah. I will you know, call you. We, I, I'd like to do that, too. That'd be great. Yeah. That'd and I'm going to be in New York a few times coming up in the spring. I've got a new book coming out as well. And um, Oh, great. Yeah. What's it going to be called? It's called Einstein's God. And it's uh, centered around my conversations with scientists, and it's fun. So that is great. I read your article about the woman neuroscience scientist, who I really loved. Who's a Jew? Oh, um, uh, Adele name. Diamond. Adele Diamond. D- yes, oh, yeah, I loved great. that. Yeah, she sounded just fantastic. Yeah, she was. Oh, good. All right. Well, our paths will cross again. We'll let you know what's happening with this. And uh, wait, I have a question from behind the glass. Oh, you say. You say Jacqueline, right? Say your name. Yes. Say your name. Jacqueline Novogratz. Jacqueline Novogratz. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I've heard her say it. Okay. <laughs> All, All right. right. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks a million. Yeah. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.